Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In today's episode, Behind the Scenes, we're going backstage in the entertainment industry and we chat with one of our authors and performers about their work. Before I play you the first story, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain some colourful language. We'll begin with the short story Film Study 101 by the late Mary Manning. Read by Little Fiction's regular Joel Horwood, the story uses film to reflect on the life of a young man who works at a movie theatre in a country town. The Motorcycle Diaries. Oscar grabs his camera, a box of Jaffers and a Freddo and, on his afternoon off work, hops on his old Norton 500 motorcycle, the same model Che Guevara drove, on his journey in a search for something worth doing. La Ponderosa, Che called his bike. The Mighty One. Oscar's bike is past being mighty. It sputters out to the dusty moonscape around the giant radio telescope, where for half an hour, he is Shay, on the rugged journey around Argentina that opened his eyes to injustice. Oscar props up the bike and eats his Freddo to give him the energy to take mankind's first gravity-free leaps from tussock to tussock. Time for a rest. He takes a batch of photos of the scruffy vegetation and in his mind fills them with wild bushrangers wielding stolen Colt revolving rifles stowing bags of gold in their saddlebags. What a dramatic film those bushrangers would make, he thinks, as he rides back to the Golden West Cinema. He has time to spare before his evening shift and sits in on a showing of Avatar for the fifth time. He is no longer Oscar, Shay, or the first Moon Man, but Jake, deep in the magical, dangerous planet Pandora. Good wins its battle over evil and Oscar has five minutes to re-enter to the reality of the Golden West. Kids are lining up to see more of Harry Potter's adventures. Oscar works here as a projectionist and sells tickets, popcorn, coffee, coke, sweets and choc tops, hands out 3D glasses and throws out drunks, lovers who get too physical, troublemakers and kids who try to sneak in without paying. It's not a bad job. He congratulates himself as he straightens up the lolly display of columbines and minties. He can indulge his passion for movies at the theatre and watch more art house ones at home on his flat screen telly. But he is beginning to feel restless, bored. It's time for a change of career, something more challenging and professional. He could become a photographer or a film critic. Well, you've seen enough films. Why not be a film critic? Some like it hot. It's getting dark outside and the foyer is quiet between sessions. He needs someone to talk to, a woman who will watch films with him, who will comfort him. Intimacy. That's what he needs. Problem is that the only time any decent women are around is when all the Elvis lookalikes turn up for the Parks Elvis Festival. But the visiting women are too busy being intimate with their Elvis mates to notice him. One night during the festival, he dyes his hair black puts on a satin shirt and prances down the street, gyrating his hips and strumming a guitar. Everyone laughs as he dances and then suddenly he's naked in Clorinda Street. 
He wakes, thankful it was a dream. The kids in the theatre are still whistling when Harry sucks up to Hermione and cheering when he kills Voldemort in the Great Hall. Oscar has tidied up everything, so he leans on the counter and watches as one of his dream women approaches. She sways her beautiful body through the foyer and feeds him licorice bullets before leading him to his huge, round, satin-sheeted bed where she licks his chocolatey lips and introduces him to film directors Pedro Almodovar and Hayao Miyazaki. Such a clever woman, this one. So knowledgeable. But what is her name? Catherine? Audrey? Prodigal Son. What are you mumbling about? It's the boss checking up, counting the popcorn. I'm trying to remember the name of my aunt whose son is getting married. And you want time off to attend the wedding, no doubt. I haven't seen my family for a while. Well, if it's a family thing, you should go. Family is important. Why did Oscar mention a family wedding when the only family he knows of is a handful of cousins whose names he has forgotten? This is apart from Sherl, who looked after him for a while after his mother died. Sherl used to cook his meals and nag him to get out of bed every morning. He's not even related to her, so surely no one would regard her as family. He barely looked at the invitation when it had arrived. A wedding could only be boring and expensive, especially when he has no idea of his relationship to either of the people named on the invitation. Then he takes another look and sees that the wedding is to be on the New South Wales south coast and right on the sand. He needs a few days by the beach. Time to surf, take photos, meet a woman or two, get a free feed. It's all pretty cool. On the road. Next morning, he catches the South Coast train. Now dozing in uneasy peace, he is Dean Moriarty, traveller and mystic, devotee of beat under the spell of Sal Paradise and his followers. He keeps hearing himself tell the boss he hasn't seen his family for a while and the unexpected reply, family is important. If Cheryl really is family, he is stuffed up badly by only seeing her once or twice since he moved out. He's forgotten to even think about her now, And what on earth would he say if he was to call her? Hello, Cheryl. This is long-lost Oscar speaking. I've been pretty busy for a few years. He has been a careless beast neglecting Cheryl like that. He makes a resolution to phone her when he gets back. No, right now. He finds her number. She's still at the old address. He prays the call will go through to her answering machine and he can at least say he tried. He might chuck up if he actually starts to speak to him. Hi, Cheryl. It's Oscar. I'm on the coast. Kayama, past Wollongong. Last-minute decision. I'd like to drop in on the way home. Tell you all about it when I see you. On the beach. He's in a cabin in the camping ground, and he needs a swim like a sinner needs baptism. He puts on his swimmers, takes his towel and camera, and heads down to the beach. It is years since he has heard waves breaking on the sand or felt the salty sea breeze on his skin. He feels exhilarated after body surfing for a while and his muscles ache. How out of practice can a man become? He rolls around in the sand like a puppy off its leash before settling into a doze to the sounds of waves and birds and in his head, the sound of Sherl's voice on the phone. He glances up and sees kids playing on the sand. 
their heads in the holes they're digging, bums in the air. He has taken a dozen shots and a short video before the mother looks his way. She gathers the kids to her and shrieks about pedophiles taking photos of children without permission. She's becoming dangerous. She will call the cops. He races back to the camping ground. Muriel's wedding. With all the excitement, Oscar has left things too late. He's just in time to take shots of the wedding guests in their best gear, making their way down a short flight of stone steps to the beach. Shafts of late afternoon sun escape through the cracks in dark clouds, making the light perfect for photography. An usher interrupts his photo shoot. We've got a no photo rule today. Keep the paparazzi out, you know. That's my family, mate, Oscar says, basking in the excitement of being at a celebrity wedding. It's just like the red carpet at Cannes. And there on the sand is the bridegroom, looking like a nervous footy player at his first match in the Premier League. Paparazzi, come to me and buy this shot of James... What's his name? That's if he is the famous one of the pair. Maybe the bride is the celeb. She does look pretty good in scraps of white satin hugging bits of her body. He takes a quick few shots of her with the bridesmaids in their Jaffa-coloured dresses. The usher is back at his side. Does this mean Jack's famous all of a sudden? Oscar asks before the usher can get a word in. Jack? The bridegroom. Jack. Uh, James, is it? He's my cousin. Simon. Maybe you should try somewhere else. Wrong wedding. He expects a laugh from the usher, but he puts on a we-are-not-amused expression and waves Oscar away. Not much of a security guard, thinks Oscar, waving back as he slinks up the steps and joins a man sitting on the pier who says he can't manage steps as he's had a knee reconstruction. Footy injury? Nah. Slipped on a mango at work. Nice guy, Simon, Oscar says, nodding towards the wedding party. Worked with him for a couple of years. The man grunts. Can't think where that could be. He hasn't held a job down for more than a month or two since he left school. The people fishing on the pier move closer, keen to catch any gossip worth smearing around town. Oscar is too tired to search for a second wedding, so he goes back to his cabin where he is chewed all night by kookaburra-sized mosquitoes and kept awake by the band from Simon's wedding party at the hotel over the road. Bellissima. Oscar phones Cheryl from the bus. He'll be there by dinner time, he tells her. She's always been good at rustling up meals. Or they could buy takeaway, which would make a nice change for her, stuck in her grim little house all day. That's fine, she says. Bella from my film study group will be here too. Film study? Cheryl's idea of a good film used to be the sound of music. You didn't tell me you're into film. Uh, it's an adult education course. We see films every month and then take them apart. What's your latest one? Bit hard to hear you, her voice cracks. Bye for now, Osk. Surely she's not crying. Shell's house has changed since he was last here, so long ago. The walls are white and the floorboards highly polished. The old furniture has been replaced by leather sofas and a round glass table. There is a bottle of red on the table and a dish of green olives. You've done the place up nice, Shirl. Ah, it was time I threw out all that old stuff. We went to a good home. Bella arrives. He's expecting one of those grey-haired, earnest people who discuss things in study groups, but Bella is his dream woman. She is Hepburn looking lovingly at Bogart, Oscar. 
in a boat in Africa. She is Rogers clasped in the arms of a stair, Oscar. He imagines leading her towards his big round bed with its satin sheets, a thought that drags him back into the world of his saggy old wooden bed with checkered woolen blankets. Bella would never sit on such a bed, let alone lie under those blankets with him. Oh, Oscar. His voice is shaky. I hear you like movies, Bella. What's your favourite ever? What a question. Depends on on what. Uh, Who I'm with, the mood I'm in. Tell me one of your favourites. Oscar's voice is steady now. He's on home territory. Dead man. You know it? Ah, Jamush. Who could forget that Indian striding through the forest spouting Blake? Our film group saw Ghost Dog. Have you seen it? Sherl interrupts. Dinner time. We can talk film while we eat. Cinema Paradiso. Bella and Oscar are eating fish and chips at Circular Quay. Seagulls hang around waiting for their share. The Didge man playing his haunting rhythms points to his hat for donations. Let's finish our best films ever lists, says Bella. We've only just got started last night. Let's go to the sea and think on that. A ferry is sitting at the wharf singing, I will rock you, rock you. Yes. Oscar sings back. Rock us down to Manly, you lovely green chariot. That's where we should be, surfing the waves, lying on the beach. They buy fruit in the mall and stroll hand in hand down to the sand like the tourists that they are. He calls Sherl. You're great, Sherl. Thanks for last night. Ask. Call me Shirley. Sherl's an old person's name and I'm not there yet. No, you're not even on the way there. Can I stay with you again tonight? Sure, bring Bella back with you. An education. Welcome everyone to week five of Film Study 101. Today we're going to look at the last section of Oscar's education. Watch this part of the film closely and you will see that Oscar is no longer the confused, self-centered dreamer we saw earlier in the film. The long shot shows him lying on the sand with Bella eating fruit from a bag. Yes, Matt, they are the couple next to the swim between the flag sign. You will notice that the music changes as they start to doze off and dream while the waves slap each other around and families celebrate wins at beach volleyball. The camera zooms right in and we see Bella stretching out and sliding her exquisitely long perfumed arm around Oscar's neck. How can a film show perfume? It's all in the body language in Oscar's facial expressions, and of course, in the sensory responses of the audience. See how, one by one, Bella feeds Oscar purple grapes from the bunch. We can talk later about the symbolism of grapes. And now, an extreme close-up as he opens his mouth against her soft arm. Her skin is delicious and slightly furry. The extreme close-up invites you to rub your own mouth against an arm and feel its texture. Try it now. You too, Matt. Pull up your sleeve and stroke your lips over your upper arm. How does it feel? Yes, Melinda, that's what the image is inviting you to feel. And now the image some critics find confronting. Oscar appears to sink his teeth into Bella's flesh and lick up the juice that runs down her arm. Is he really biting her? And is he licking peach juice? or blood, fantasy, or reality. 
You have to work that out from the lighting and music, not to mention the body language. That was Film Study 101 by Mary Manning. Next, we move to the world of TV with a story based on the life of a character from the popular 90s sitcom Friends. Ross Gellerman is written by Patrick Lenton and is published in his collection A Man Made Entirely of Bats. It is performed by Lauren Hamilton Neal. David Schwimmer wasn't having a good time of late, as evidenced by his failed marriage and stagnant career. The star of Friends had made enough money per episode to keep African countries out of debt, so it wasn't like he was struggling financially, but he felt like maybe his pride was suffering. It's not really like any of his fellow co-stars had gone on to great things. Jennifer Aniston kept plugging away at rom-coms, bless her heart, and Lisa Kudrow was sometimes given the indie nod of approval. The drunk who'd played Chandler, whatever his name was, had kept himself busy writing articles about his time on drugs, which, you know, kept him topical. And the last time he'd seen Joey, the actor was standing out the front of a cupcake shop becking for cakes by continually saying, Come on, it's Joey! It's Joey! How you doing? David had just got back from filming a toothpaste ad, and even being in front of the camera for a little while made him wonder if he should throw his hat in the ring again. Was he old enough to start playing handsome, older dad characters yet? Yes, but he still looked exactly the same. When he gazed in the mirror, it was Ross Geller staring back at him. He felt like even messed up child stars had a better deal than him. At least they could get fat. Strolling along the icy streets of New York, bundled in layers of expensive scarves and a Tibetan yak wool jacket, David Schwimmer started to understand what the magazines had been talking about in 1998 when they referred to Schwimmer fatigue. He was so sick of himself. Himself in the morning looking flustered. Himself smiling emptily into the camera at family functions. Himself caught mid-action in nostalgia articles on BuzzFeed. He fantasised about disappearing to Argentina like a Nazi war criminal. He laughed bitterly, releasing a plume of stream into the night air. He was probably more recognisable in Argentina than here, what with the endless reruns of Friends they played. No, for better or worse, he was trapped. Rounding the corner to his street, he paused outside the large heritage building that he was controversially renovating, he felt a lot like the house, doomed to be forever unchanging, forbidden by law to add a funky roof pool to his house, to his soul. Last week, graffiti artists protesting renovations to the old house had written things all over the fence, including the sentence, Russ is not cool, which he supposed he should appreciate the humour of. He couldn't, though. Not even after seeing his therapist's face and realising that he was supposed to get the humour. While he was thinking about how much he hated his therapist, a woman who once admitted to enjoying two and a half men, he heard the unmistakable sound of glass breaking. Looking up, he realised it was a window in his own house and that there were two behooded youths in his yard throwing rocks. Hey, he called. And in the stress of the moment, his voice broke, a trademark Ross Geller move, 
a voice he had manufactured to be dorky and sweet, but in this instance it broke naturally and the two youths turned around. Fuck, it's Ross, one of them muttered. The other laughed a snort of contempt from under his hood. David Schwimmer surged forward and found himself breaking those young bodies, shattering their skulls and using parts of their bodies to hit other bits. He was possessed with the strength of two men, Schwimmer and Geller. Um, Ross is a badass, he squeaked, and somewhere in his head he heard a studio audience applaud. Later that week, he found himself strolling the bad end of the city, past incredulous-looking sex workers and past out drunks and into the garbage-strewn alleys. He was wearing sneakers, a grey sweater with an orange stripe down the arms and a pair of big baggy jeans, the costume of mid-90s Ross Geller. Eventually, he found what he was looking for, three men mugging a sad-faced older man. "'Did you know I'm an archaeologist?' He asked in his cracked voice. What the fuck, replied one of the muggers before Ross Geller's shovel smashed his head in. Looks like you can't dig it, Ross quipped before murdering the other muggers. Sobbing, the old man grabbed pitifully at Ross's enormous jeans. Who are you? Some kind of superhero? No, answered Ross, David. I'm Ross Geller from the television show Friends. Thank you, Ross Geller, man. I'll never forget you. Not if you have cable TV. Probably not. Using his millions of dollars earned from top-ranking network TV, Ross Gellerman bought a jetpack and gadgets and hired Chandler. The amazing Chandler to be his sidekick. Well, mostly all the amazing Chandler did was detox in Ross Gellerman's basement and remind Ross Gellerman that he had a real name. Still, Ross felt he'd been successful in using his celebrity status to get them into casinos and exclusive clubs. He was pleased he'd taken his fight to clean up the streets into mob territory. Why are you doing this? One mob boss asked. Ross Gellerman had answered, Um, why wouldn't I be doing this? Before throwing him off a building. But there was still something missing. And he asked the amazing Chandler about it one evening as they flew around New York in a helicopter. Could you be any thicker? The amazing Chandler replied. That was good. That sounded like Chandler. You can have a treat now. Anyway, what do you mean? Ross Gellerman has everything he could want. A vendetta against crime? A T-Rex skeleton in his bedroom? You don't have the one thing Ross really needs. Rachel. It was relatively easy to break into Jennifer Aniston's island mansion. Well, relatively easy for Ross Gellerman, that is. After he finally killed the last guard, he found her in her bedroom looking terrified. What are you doing, David? She screamed. He laughed at her. Classic Rachel, you always overreact. Ross Gellerman was covered in blood and viscera, which was unattractive, so when he went in for a classic Ross and Rachel kiss, she brained him with a lamp. The story didn't receive a huge amount of attention in the news, because earlier that day, Courtney Cox Arquette had shot the President of the United States, because she was an assassin for hire. She was quoted on the front page of a major newspaper saying, this is Monica's story! Hello! Thank you. That was Patrick Lenton's Ross Geller Man. 
and was recorded live at Knox Street Bar in Chippendale by Lauren Hamilton Neal. Lauren is a Sydney actor, formerly from Queensland. Lauren's screen credits include Deadly Women, The Suspects and The Gods of Wheat Street. I caught up with Lauren and Patrick recently to find out more about their creative processes. Here's an excerpt from our interview. So we are back at Knox Street Bar tonight, which is where little fiction Sydney has had its home for quite some time. Um, And we're joined tonight by Patrick Lenton, who is one of our authors, and also by Lauren Hamilton-Neal, who is one of our actors and performers at Little Fictions. Lauren performed Ross Gellerman, so we thought we might just hand over to you guys to have a bit of a chat about that experience. Maybe, Patrick, you could kind of let us know how that piece came to be birthed, um, points of inspiration for it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's actually one of the uh, few stories I can point out a very quick and uh, an easy access point to uh, uh, the inspiration. Um, it's, uh, it's actually based on an entirely uh, real thing where um, David Schwimmer, the actor who played Ross Geller in the iconic uh, comedy sitcom Friends, um, he bought this uh, heritage brownstone um, house in uh, New York somewhere, like somewhere probably quite iconic, which I can't remember. And uh, he um, he started like um, adapting it and renovating it and adding all these sorts of things that really weren't allowed. But because he's David Schwimmer and he's got like, you know, a billion dollars, he just kind of like steamrolled the city and, uh, and it ended up being... Um, like he got fined for it, but he was like, I can wear this. And there was this big sort of story about it. And like, and people were protesting and cause you know, he really was like kind of like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's fair to say ruining, but he definitely was, um, changing, uh, uh you know, a piece of architectural history. And, um, and then what sort of also made the news is that someone graffitied the entire front uh, gate of the house and, and it just said Ross is not cool <laughs> and like, and it just it's one of my favourite things in the world because like like yeah David Schwimmer is a successful wealthy actor who he might not even want to but he can never escape Ross you know um, and uh, and it's just somehow the most cutting insult um, I, that like that anyone could think of was just to say Ross is not cool, not even David Schwimmer, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of got me onto the um, the idea of um, of celebrities sort of unable to leave behind a role. And I kind of imagined what it would be like if um, if David Schwimmer was so unable to leave Ross behind that it kind of turned into a uh, an alternate persona uh, and one that kind of controlled various parts of his personality. (laughs) That was author Patrick Lenton chatting with me about writing and performing. You can find the extended version of that interview in the podcast of this episode on the 2RPH website. We hope you've enjoyed Behind the Scenes. Do let us know what you think of our show. We'd love your feedback. You can leave a comment on the 2RPH website or their Facebook page, or give them a call or write them a letter. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your Little Fictions on Air host. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher Bronwyn Meehan and our sound engineer was Kit McCutcheon. Bye for now.